Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Somebody, somebody put something in my drink. You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 275 is Richie Ramone, real name Richie Reinhardt. He was actually performing as Richard Bow in a band called Velveteen in the early 80s. He also played on Fred Schneider from the B-52s solo album around that time when he was picked up by the Ramones when Marky had to drop out for drug reasons. And according to his autobiography, Richie re-energized the band. He had a very nice, close relationship with Joey, who encouraged his songwriting, and so he ended up contributing to the writing on the three albums that he played on before he quit in a dispute having to do with getting a fair share of the merchandising for the band. The three albums that he played on were Too Tough to Die, Animal Boy, and Halfway to Sanity. You're right now hearing the opening track from 1986's Animal Boy, Somebody Put Something in My Drink, which was also a single from that album, written by Richie. Today we're going to discuss Not Afraid, a 2022 single, I Know Better Now, which was originally Ramon's tune, but which he re-released on his 2013 first solo album, Untitled. And then Humankind will actually play the Ramones version from Too Tough to Die, 1984. Also, I Fix This from his second and to date most recent album, Cellophane, from 2016. And we'll conclude by listening to a 2018 single, The Last Time. He also talks some about his movie career, about developing his own brand even as he continues to carry the Ramones banner, doing quite a few Ramones songs in his live set since... All the original members are dead. Who else is going to do it? The inciting product for this interview was his 2018 autobiography, I Know Better Now, My Life Before, During, and After the Ramones, co-written with Peter Aaron, one of my other guests for this podcast. I highly recommend that book. You can learn about everything Richie's doing at richieramone.com. You can learn more about this podcast at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. If you want to support the show and get my detailed notes with the lyrics and everything for the songs, go to patreon.com slash music. So I will have played a little bit of Somebody Put Something in My Drink by the Ramones from Animal Boy, your second album with them, 1986. I'm going to try to not just prompt you to tell the same Ramones stories that you've told many times here, but this song in particular, the first time I heard it, I was sure oh, this must be Richie singing, because it didn't sound like Joey, but you had a story in your book about how Joey actually maybe adopted this new vocal style due to your influence. You know, I thought it was a little different, a stretch for him when I first heard it, you know. I've heard him sing heavy before, but this was really, he really pushed on this song. And John Bouvard produced the album, and they just went to Sweden to record the vocals. So I didn't go. So when it came back, I was like, wow. It's a little different. It took me a while to, I thought I was going to get like, you know, the sweet Joey crooner on uh-huh. that, yeah, that I was used to. But 
yeah, we had influences on each other, you know, like I sang a lot of demos for him before he would even sing them on the songs I wrote and even other songs. The band was definitely a little tougher and harder. They were switching ways in that period in the 80s. Well, let's jump pretty rapidly to right now. I want to play the new single. Is it a double A side or is there really Not Afraid is the main song and Cry Little Sister is the is the minor song? Yeah, well, there's an A and B side, but is that really a thing anymore, you know? And call it a B side, does that mean that it's crummier? No, Cry Little Sister, that's the soundtrack that comes out in September, I believe, for the movie Protégé Moore, because I've been acting. I play a, the lead vampire in that movie, so I covered this song for that movie. Not Afraid was written by Mark Diamond from The Dwarfs, who is a friend of mine who you know we toured with for a while. And I said, Mark, you got to write me a song. He came with this you know, idea, this song, and I think I really made it my own, and I'm really excited about that. So that's the backstory on those songs. So it's him playing, me on drums and singing, and Claire Mistake on bass and singing. She's in my band full-time for like years. Yeah. 
kind of fill me in on how things work career-wise for you, that you've just had a couple solo albums spaced out. You know, after the Ramones, I saw there was kind of a flurry of like around 2012 before you put out your first solo album of you playing with other bands and you do Ramones reunion things and you're doing the solo tour. Do you have a day job at this point? Or are you able to patch together between the book and other things like that music is still your main thing? Yeah, music is still, that's it. I don't think I've had a day job in quite a while, maybe 18 years, I don't know, 15 years. The trick to this business is, you know, it's not all, you know, champagne and roses and caviar. It's being smart and keeping your overheads down, you know. It's a tough DYI business, but I love it. And and now I'm at a point where, you know, I don't need a lot of money. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I'm a senior just hanging out, you know. So it took me like I'm in my 12th year of building my brand, believe it or not, Richie Ramone, not the Ramones. It's two different things. Just because you're in Ramones, you have to start all over again if you're a singer and a songwriter. And right now, everything's coming together. I feel like I've found myself as a singer and everything, and more and more fans are coming out. So now I feel like the next, I got a few more years left of this, you know, I think that'll get going to get really exciting for me starting the end of this year and next year. So as long as we stay healthy, you know, I'm going to keep doing it. You know, as long as people come out and want to see me, that's fine. So, but am I right is that the appeal of it is not as much the songwriting specifically as it was in the past. I mean, this is your first single in a while and you ask somebody else to write a song for you or do you have like an album's worth of material that's been brewing We talked about it. Our album's going to be finished in August. I've been doing a bunch of stuff off it. This could be the best album yet. You know, you always try to top yourself. So we're going to finish recording that in August. It's basically recording, touring, and playing golf. That's pretty much my life. (laughs) Let me drill into a couple of details. So in the intro of the song, the very beginning, the first time you play through the progression, you anticipate the second Two times. Right. And, but then you only do that once, right? After that, as soon as the lead guitar riff comes in, you're just playing straight. Any thoughts of like, is, do you feel like, like that that is actually the riff of the song? Like, are you still thinking about writing or, you know, when arranging in this case, like the drum is playing a melody there and that's why it doesn't just do it twice or do it throughout the song? You know, I made those two. We call them jumps. I made the first two jumps and the last two just playing straight through. So that's what happens on both of those turnarounds. I don't know why I do things. (laughs) You just do things. You know, I write a lot in threes, three times around, six times around. I don't write a lot. My songs are like two times around, four times around, like the normal thing. But none of this is premeditated. This is all just comes from within and that's it. Like those lead guitar riffs. Did you already have where the jumps were going to be in the not jumps? Yeah, it was on a drum machine when I heard it. So that's all that drumming I did. And you play with it and stuff like that. But then you're in the studio, you know, after the demos for the real deal. And there it's like one, two takes. You're done. What happens at that moment happens at that moment. Some of the planned stuff is there, but fills and things like that are just on the spot. What's going to work, you know? And that song seemed to be like the A-side songs. I keep a little, you know, you want to keep them steady, you know? Just rock out. There's no big fancy drumming on that. So like some of the vocal choices you made, the I can still, that was on the demo or it was? No, none of that. That's all like my, like, that's my spin. Mark's not a singer and it came like that. When you hear from the demo, what it become, it's a big deal. I write those melodies and stuff like that. Yeah. 
you have just a couple beats of just drums that everything stops. Yeah, that's the the Ramones floor time snare drum beat. That's it. Simple. Boom, 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 boom. You know, that's all. There could have been some other kind of fill or something, but I just kept it basic and that was it. Yeah, it seems like you wait until the ends of the course, then you can have some kind of big fill to get you to the rest. But it's not like every time you're going into the chorus or anything, it's just... Kind of like queuing everywhere, you know? I find like, you know, the drums don't have to turn around or like cue, like, okay, there's something. So now we're going to another verse, you know? I think if there's other things in the song that make that happen anyway, you don't need to put a papa before each verse or each chorus or each change of part. It sounded like you were just doing eighth notes on the hi-hat, right? That you weren't doing the really fast Yeah, no, the eighth notes, not afraid. Oh, okay, so you're doing the six, okay. Yeah, that was like, they get tougher and tougher for an old guy. Well, it's yeah, it's a fast song. I was actually playing, I have a drum kit next to here, and I was trying to, it's not my primary instrument, but it's the one I play the most, because it's the most fun, and was trying to play along, and that is the thing that I hear you heard you describe in another interview, of getting your right wrist fast enough to just, that, that is the the reason I don't play drums live with a band, because I like that and the double kicks are, are the <laughs> limiting factor. Well, there's amazing drummers out there that couldn't do that beat, you know? It's kind of silly, but... But when you're like this all the time, it's like, you know, it's yep. ridiculous, because you don't, you don't really practice it. You practice what you, you play. So there's a choice few of people who could play that way. And Is there a particular BPM where you know that you're going to start doing it with two hands? <laughs> because like... It's just not going to come out faster than, cause like I could play that beat with two hands. That's easy, but it's, you don't get the intensity of having the hi hat and the snare on the beat at the same time. If you're mm-hmm. any thoughts about just how, like, are you still playing drums enough that you can keep up those chops? Or is it like, okay, now I'm going to get to a recording. I got a kind of woodshed for a couple of weeks to get back up to speed. Some of both, uh-huh. you know. If I'm not touring, I don't pick up the sticks. If I'm home for two months, I'm just chilling. You got to work at everything. You got to work at what you eat. You got to work at the gym. You got to like to keep this thing going. It, it all takes a lot more work than it did with a kid when I'd go out and have like 12 cocktails, sleep four hours and, you know, let's go. I'm ready again. That doesn't happen anymore. You know, there's a lot more training involved. You got to work harder. It's just like an athlete. You know, but they're doing it at a much younger age. When these athletes turn 40, you know, and they're still playing football, the basketball players beating around, it takes them a lot, a lot more to wake up every day. You know, and I have friends all over the world, and this is why I do it, because I enjoy it. People are coming to the shows and enjoying themselves. And best show I've seen in 20 years, you know, this is a really high energy show still. And when it doesn't become that anymore, then I'll stop. But, you know, I still have more to give and it hasn't really slowed down it's really cool rich ramones show is really cool it's different than the ramones but it's a really exciting show well let's listen to uh your version from the album entitled from 2013 it was originally recorded by ramones from your last album with them halfway to sanity 1987 but this is the version that you you actually got to put real lead guitars on <laughs> you know actual licks because you didn't have johnny his purism it's clearly this is an important song since you named your book after it. That was my first album, and that's when I was still growing. I got Tommy Boland, who played, he's a shredder, man. So I wanted to make this metal kind of punk record, which was great. You know, it was great for the thing, but I've grown beyond that record. 
but I know better now. It's great because it's all about, you know, growing up as a kid and even after a kid into life. I'll never give up all the wisdom I have from my youth again. It's just not worth it. I've gained so much. When you get older, you have so much knowledge and street wisdom to go through all of that again and learn in your 20s and 30s and 40s. Not for me. I can pick them out like that, you know. That's why I'm never going to give up. But it's my upbringing and my home and stuff like that. So as a kid. Before we talk about that song, let's take our sponsor break. I know the tension has been rising in the interview. Richie is probably wondering at this point, why did I sign up to do this podcast? But don't worry, he comes around eventually. Let me lighten the mood by telling you about Nebia by Moen, which is a revolutionary showerhead. You got this young, hungry company, Nebia, passionate about 
saving the planet, about saving water. They're from California, where the drought, it seems, never ends. They've got former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers. And you got Moen, a longtime industry leader. Well, they paired to create a superior shower experience. You probably thought your shower had just came with the house, and there's that's just a shower. There's nothing you could do about it. But no, you can upgrade your life, this very important part of your daily routine. And here comes Nebbia by Moen with their new Quattro Showerhead, intriguingly designed with four spray modes, including my favorite, the very luxurious soft spray, their signature spa-like enveloping experience, and also two uh, hard spray modes. You can figure out which is your favorite or you can uh, rotate between them. All of them have plenty of water pressure. It's no problem washing even the thickest hair, for instance. Yet, they save 40 to 50% of water as compared to a traditional shower. To date, the Nebbia community have saved more than 300 million gallons of water with 50,000 units sold around the world. Their goal is to save 1 billion gallons of water by next year. So, more luxury for you, lower water bills, good conscience. And I should say it's also super easy to install. It's like changing a light bulb. Nebbia by Moen Quattro starts at just $119 exclusively on Nebbia.com. And Nebbia gave us a special discount just for our community. Go to Nebbia.com slash N-E-M. Use code N-E-M at checkout to get 10% off all Nebbia products. Again, go to Nebbia.com slash N-E-M. That's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash N-E-M to check out what they have to offer. Save 10% with the code N-E-M. And ooh, I want to tell you about Masterclass, where you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere at your own pace. You can learn how to win negotiations at your workplace with FBI hostage negotiator Chris Voss. You can learn directing with Ron Howard or makeup and beauty with Bobby Brown. Become a streamer, cook something new, design stunning floral arrangements, learn about science and politics in the world. And just about any kind of creative thing, including a dozen plus music classes by just a-listers, all beautifully shot video, or you can just listen to them as audio, wonderfully edited lessons, easy to fit into your schedule, to skip around or really take a deep dive. You could look at the supplementary materials or ignore them. You could engage with the community that's watching these things along with you or ignore them. The new class that I looked at this time was Amanda Gorman teaches writing and performing poetry. You might have seen Amanda read The Hill We Climb at the 2021 inauguration. She's the first National Youth Poet Laureate and has written three best-selling books. She will convince you that you, really anyone, can be a poet. How to develop your own poetic voice, how to do close readings in poetry, how to do research for your poetry, how to improve your performance, tools that you can use in developing the poem, revisions, every step of the process. So a music-adjacent thing I found very fascinating there are so many things that will inspire you to get beyond the way you create into neighboring disciplines, which can in turn enrich your songwriting or just your enjoyment of art. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass. And as a nakedly examined music listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash examined. That's masterclass.com slash examined for 15% off masterclass. Having a catchy title like that means... Obviously, it has a different referent if you're using it now and in your book and can talk about your days and their moans as opposed to in the song itself when you're referring, as you said, to your upbringing. What is the politics here? Like, I thought them telling me to stay home was for my own good. But now I know, like, it sounds like you're saying in the song that there's some parental conspiracy or something. Yeah, it's, yeah. Here's the thing about songwriting and lyrics. If you become too detailed, people ask these questions. I don't want to tell them exactly what that's about. 
because a song can mean three or four different things to three or four different people. Like you may notice that about the song. Someone else may think of something completely different of what I'm talking about. So I don't spoil these parties. I want people to interpret this, the lyrics like they think what I'm doing. I'm not going to tell them, oh, this is exactly what it is. That's fine. I know that's the sort of the conceit. You know, I've heard, the- you've heard, you know, Cry Little Sister. That's not about horror. That guy wrote this song about, you know, being abused as a child, watching his sister being abused by the parents and things like that. That's pretty intense. But that has nothing to do with the Lost Boys or vampires or anything, you know? So to really get to the nitty gritty, depressed mode, half the songs are about death and dying, but it's, it's not in the lyric, I'm going to kill you or something like that. You know what I'm saying? It's interesting. This one, you start off, in quotation marks. It's like the singer is saying, you're a kid, you're a brat. But then it's clear like, oh, no, no. It's not that this is your or Joey's punk persona saying these things. It's your parroting parents or something like that. Right. But I don't know. There's something about Joey's vocal delivery and the fact that he could like sing beat on the brat with the baseball bat. Like he can make anything just sound. It's not funny quite, but like it would not be offensive, right? It's not like kill the cops or whatever, you know, or if he did sing that, he would sing it in such a playful way that you're like, is this in quotes? What What are you doing here? There's some kind of irony or something that it makes him immune to saying, oh, that's what his political stance is or something like that. Kind of goes with what you were just saying about it. Like, I'm just singing it. I'm crooning it. Like, yeah, it's, it's a punk croon, croon that he kind of originated so that you could, you know, talk about the KKK took my baby away. And that could be, is it a funny song it sounds horrible <laughs> like in terms of the if you take it literally and put it like oh this is a story of a hate crime or something like that but it still remains fun kind of what whatever is being said okay does that seem like something that you've carried forward that like no this is this is me getting my demons out and because there seems like that's what a lot of hard rock is is much more self-serious and intentionally intense i'm a doer i don't, I don't really think about stuff. I'm not deep like that, so sorry. I can't answer those kind of questions. That is totally fine. You worked it back up with a live band, and like that's what this version became, or was this created for the studio? I don't know. I thought it was kind of the same. I just didn't know if you were already with that band touring and stuff, or was like, I'm creating the new, this is the beginning of the Richie Ramone brand, and I'm getting studio musicians. I recorded that before we toured. Okay. Were you able to like Bolin and other, you know, the folks that played on this? Like, did that become your core band or did you have to? I think we did one tour in South America and then things started to go differently. So we did some shows together. Yeah. I like the end of this that you have. I know better now. And the now is like all by itself, right? Everything else drops out. I mean, is that even a thing that you could do live in any kind of effective way? Or like, how do you end this live? I don't recall. (laughs) All right. We just end the song. Why does that really matter, though, that you would want to? It's about a song. It's not about a mixing decision or... Just trying to get at how you think creatively. If somebody else produced this, if somebody else was was in the room, it would come out different, even if they have the same stated goals. But everybody's got their own little quirks, and you know we often don't think about them. I don't know. That's at least the conceit of the show. Let's barrel forward and see if if you're interested in any of these questions. So Humankind... This one, I actually want to play the Ramones version. So this is off Too Tough to Die, 1984, your first album with them. I read in your book a little about how you wrote this in the first place on keyboard. Can you say a little about before we hear it, the background of this? 
this was written for the band, right? Yeah, I wasn't really playing any kind of guitar then. So yeah, I had a Casio keyboard and that's how I wrote. So I wrote it in my apartment in Brooklyn on the keyboard. And then Phil Cabano, from he's a monster magnet now. He would come to the six-story floor walk-up after I wrote the song and put the guitar on it, on like a little four-track. And that's how we, I presented the song to the Ramones. So that's how I wrote then. So this is kind of, I know this is sort of the theme of the book of how much you were accepted as a full Ramon, but the fact, I don't know. So were you invited to submit songs or you just had a song and you just threw it at him? Yeah. Joey told me we were doing a new album, Richie. Come on. You got to write some songs. You know, he was always pushing me, Joey. It's great. And had you tried to write like for Velveteen or any of your other past yeah, projects? Yeah, I wrote, I wrote okay. before. wrote that song for Fred Schneider on his solo record and we wrote some things before, but not. This was kind of like a, a big moment, you know, writing for, you know, Sire Records. That's a big deal. So he pushed me to do it, and, and I wrote and bring the songs in, and everybody picked the songs, you know, in the manager's office. Did you want to sing lead on any of this, or were you just like, no, I want to hear Joey singing it? No, 
I'm a drummer first, you know. I don't consider myself a singer. I sing live now in front of the band more because it's entertaining and I enjoy expressing the songs my way. But I'm a drummer first. I mean, has there been any like attempts to, uh, I guess in some of these Ramones reunions, of course, you're not singing lead on a lot of the stuff where you've intentionally sought out a project where you just want to be the drummer at this point. Like tomorrow at the Joey Bash, I'll be the drummer. But not for like a consistent band. That's not something you're looking yeah, for. There are, you know, there's, I don't sort out anything. Oh, I just okay. go day to day. You got the wrong guy for all this thing. <laughs> all this thinking and I don't wear, you know, a tinfoil on my baseball cap or I just wake up and this is what it is. And I'm healthy, you know, I'm happy I can wake up and still do this. But I have people doing that. So I'm not really thinking about that. With the song... It seems like it's aimed at sort of record company. That's just, you know, another song. It's almost like what's going on today. You know, it's just about the world being fucked up and not a great place. and People are all weird and that type of thing. So it's, it's getting like that again, even worse now, you know. But uh, the Cadillac line, you know, about the Cadillac, that's my mom drove a Cadillac, you know. So I, that's where the Cadillac word came in. But, you know, it's just a typical song about people being frustrated about life and being... Then again, it may mean something different to somebody else. I actually, I just before we were talking here, I was watching a, a Ramones interview from before you joined, where they're on the I forget what talk show that they're on, and they're just kind of ripping on. They're asked, "Why aren't you on the radio more?" Like, well, because the radio is mediocre and it's driven by people with nothing to say. Like, they're you know they have a definite I don't know if you want to call it a political agenda, but an artistic agenda. That it's mediocrity, it is money-driven, and that's why everything is crap. And it seemed like the Cadillac thing or, you know, was playing into that somehow. I don't know, at least maybe that's why part of what made, made this appealing to the, the guys. That's good that you think that. If you, have a th- if you have a thought on that, all right. I have no thoughts on that. We have on a couple of these songs where you get big groups. In fact, the next song I, w- I wanted to play is I Fix This. In fact, let's just transition into that, where you have... What's a good way to record a gang vocal? All right. I've had trouble I with that. I guess 20 people in the room. And you have to have a nice omnidirectional mic or something. Cause I don't know. I've, I've tried in the past. I recall like being a teenager and having people gathering around in SM58 and like. No, there were two mics all around. There were two mics and then you do it like 20 times. So you have 20 tracks of it by 10 people. That's 200 people going at once. So that's what makes it sound like. Ah, all right. And then you move, and then, so everybody's in a big circle, two mics or whatever up there. And then after each take, you move positions. So the sound comes from different places at the microphone. Okay. And then you just use all those tracks together. Yeah, let's introduce that tune. I fixed this. So this is your last solo album, 2016, Cellophane. This was a a single off it. It's got a cool video for folks, too. Yeah, it's probably the best post Ramones song by anybody from the Ramones. This, I fixed this. It's still, it's still a great song. And there's a little backstory on this one, which, you know, I might as well tell you. When I was in uh, Sweden, promoter there, you know, we were touring there a couple of years ago. And anytime I wanted something like, you know, I said, hey, can we go down to the store? Or can you get me a, I want to go get something to eat? He'd say, I fixed this. And I was like, wow. He says, I fixed this to everything. Like I was, and I asked, I said, well, that's what I say. You know, I fixed this, you know, instead of I'll go get it or no worries. It's I fixed this. So, okay. So I figured that's his thing. And then maybe 
a couple of days later, I was in the store and I asked the, the lady behind the register for something. Can you get me this? And she said, I fixed this. That's when I fell to the floor and I said, oh, my God, this is, uh, this is the most greatest term I've ever heard. I fixed this and I have to write this song. And it's not necessarily, this isn't about me walking around Sweden. It's just the title that's exciting. It's basically about, you know, I fix this. I'm going to take care of, oh, you're having a problem. I'll take care of it. No problem. That's what the song's about. This is relatively recent in terms of like, was this a band that you'd already been playing live with? Again, was this? Uh, yes. Now, now the band I've been playing live. Now I've had years under my belt. That's kind of cool, I think, because now I was founding my sound, what I sounded like live. Then I was going to the studio with that. I was starting to find myself as an artist now. Hard to do a record, you know, never playing live or having a band just putting together a record, you know, and that's what happened on the first album. So now we've been playing, I've been writing live, and so... 
And this doesn't have the crazy guitar solos. Like the guitar interlude that it has is kind of one riff repeated. The first record was a metal. And then I moved away. I moved away from that. I became way more melody conscious. And the first record I wanted to come back, I did a lot of songs I wrote for the Ramones on that, maybe four or five songs, because I wanted people to just hear my voice. So I wanted to play the songs a little more heavier. And what was I going to do? Why I re-recorded those songs is I wanted to give them something that they knew. And that's what happened with that. And that's how that record came about. So now it's changed. Everything's changed. One of the things I recall getting out of your book was just the advice of, for drummers, don't hit the cymbals as hard as you think. You know, throughout all these songs, I was kind of paying extra attention to what you were doing on drums and any thought on it, like you switch to the ride here during that guitar solo thing. Do you just do it as you feel it at the moment or do you kind of have specific spots? Like, I think I noticed on one of the songs where like you were doing the ride on the second course, but not on the first like, okay, that's unusual. Is that the kind of thing that would just even change up day to day, just depending on how you're, what, what, like, how many symbols do you normally play with? The three across the top or just two? Two crashes and one ride. Okay. Sometimes one over the floor toms, if I use two floor toms lower, but I really don't use two floor toms. I usually just put a towel on the one, like Buddy Rich on the lowest floor tom. It would hold my towel and sticks. All you need is four drums and make them sing and you're doing good. So you don't do a lot of like half open hi-hat or just like riding on the crash kind of stuff, like just to fill up. That's a normal like hard rock thing to like, we need to really fill up space. Like whereas a closed hi-hat or the ride is just going to be the chick, chick, chick. Like we need going throughout. I mean, is that a... You got to have ears. Otherwise, don't be a musician. You're wasting your time. Ah. Ben, the only time I analyze is my set list. I analyze that back and forth to get that exactly right for a live show. That's what made the Ramones so good. Their set list was so wonderful, the way it worked. They had the same set list, and they just would change like four songs every album because getting the right flow and the changes, it's something you don't mess with. You can switch two or three songs on every new record, but wow, that's what I've analyzed. I assume it's kind of the same thing when you're sequencing an album. A little, but... Now albums, there's no albums anymore. It doesn't matter. Everybody just by, you know, they download the single. An album is just a bunch of songs on vinyl. They charge more than a single. There's no flows to records anymore. People don't do that. I mean, I noticed on Entitled, like you had put your, the Ramones-y stuff, your re-recording to Ramones songs toward the end. Like, that's not what I'm doing now. Like, my prime thing is, is up here. Never thought of that. Okay. And just the fact that, you know, they somebody put something in my drink, that that got the beginning of the album. Like, that's like, was that an opener in the... Such an honor, are you kidding, that they let that off? The first or second song on the records are generally your best things. You know, if your single came out, a lot of times you put it as your second song. They should have made the video to that song. Didi wanted so bad to make, you know, that one of the videos, but it didn't happen. So now, do you feel like you're thinking a lot about the set lists, are you mixing Ramon stuff in kind of throughout, or is it... My set list is done for this year, for the next couple of tours I have. And yes, there's Ramon stuff in there. There's new Ramon stuff. There's new material that I'm not recording to August that I'm doing live. So I'm really feeling out what's happening, and it's really good. Is the sequencing just based mostly on the moods, or is it on like, I know the audience is going to be ready for a Ramon's tune by song five or something? You know, the, the no. kind of... okay just purely based on what actually feels good. What's going to feel right. 
what chord structure goes, you know, we play for an hour, but we never stop. So what chord structures are going to sound good going from one to the other and stuff like that, you know? Where do we need the spaces to tune? So there's a lot involved with all that. And maybe you said this, is Mark Diamond in your live band now, or that's just your a friend of yours? Mark Diamond's in the Dwarves. No, he just recorded the single for It's the Richie Ramone brand, but are other people in the band contributing songs, or is that... Yeah, Claire writes. Claire's co-wrote two or three on this record with me. Does anybody else get to sing lead on anything, or is this... It's, no. It's, this is the Richie Ramone show. That's, it's... No one sings lead, and no one sings... No one plays drums. Okay. Oh, even when you jump out to the front, I thought you had a couple songs at least, or is that not in this current... Live, I only play drum. Live, I only play drums around eight or nine songs now. I mainly front the band. My drummer's Chris Moy from Texas. He plays drums live. You can't have an entertaining show sitting behind the drums and singing all night, twenty-five feet back in the dark where there's no lights. You know, it's the most stupidest thing to look at from the audience perspective. And I did too much of that for too long. You know, you got to be an entertainer, and you need to entertain up front and find somebody who could play good enough where you don't have to throw up all night listening to a bad drummer behind <laughs> so I, given I, that I, he's I, obviously talented enough to pull it off but like are you riding him about specific things like no no no, no you're missing the or you just let him do what he's gonna do 100% of the time 100% of the time I drive him crazy <laughs> I know what I played and I know how I want those drums to sound and you better be steady you better just play on that metronome or you're gonna get smashed it so drummers down the block don't understand you know the structure of Ramones and how to play Ramones whether it be a guitar player or the drummer or whatever there's a certain feeling about it there's a swing about it you know and you have to learn that so every drummer has to go through me telling them no no you know they all want to go and put a boom and bang and bloom 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 stuff like that no everything is structured and fits you know so and no double kick but, pedal. Nah, you don't need that. That's it for a different type of music. Nothing wrong with it. It's for a different type of music. All right. Well, let's just close down here by introducing your last single before this. The last time, it's kind of a ballad. It's still like within the Ramones universe, sort of. But it's 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 a pretty calm. <laughs> Any thoughts about this one before we let folks go? No, it's funny you mention that because that's the lead-off song now on DC Jam's new compilation album that just came out. He's got a lot of great bands on there. I don't even know what the title is, but DC Jam Records. And they led that album off with that. You know, there's Bad Brains on there. There's all kinds of stuff on that record. That song I wrote after my dad passed a couple years ago. It's all about the last moments as I watched him die on his bed. I was there. Well, I guess just to return then to a question I asked earlier, I mean, is it at this point, it doesn't sound like you're just like writing songs all the time. Like, are there, is it just part of your regular routine or is it like a specific thing will happen? Or, you know, there's got to be an inciting event to like rise to the level of like, I'm going to actually sit down and finish. I'm a deadline guy. I know I have time booked in the studio in August and I'm a deadline guy and I'll probably be finished up lyrics on my drive to the studio. I need that, you know. Songwriting isn't like you're walking down the street and you wrote a song. People may tell you that. People have told me, oh, I wrote 100 songs this year. I go, 100 songs? It can only be like five that are worth anything. 
you know, how could you write a hundred songs? You know, like that to me is, doesn't make any sense. But Didi could write, Didi could write a hundred poems in a year. You know, that he was, Didi was a poet. I'm not a poet. I have to have these like experiences, real life experiences or see something or hear something. And then I'm going to write the song. But getting back to the question, it's work. It's a job. You have to go down there. You have to sit, get in that studio and write, physically do it. Not just loaf around and smoke weed and, I don't know, think you're going to be driving around town when you wrote this song. Maybe you heard a little bit of a melody. You're still going to write the whole song. Right, right. I have a lot of song ideas that have come up like that, and then I pull out my phone and record. You still got to write the song and get not. it done. <laughs> Much less actually record it. Yeah, so it's a real it's a real job. So no, I don't do it every day. And I know it's got to be done, then I get it done. I'll get it done in the end, but, you know, I'm more of a deadline person. But the deadlines are self-imposed, right? Or are you working with a record company for this? That self-imposed. Everything is self-imposed. It's even worth, I was not trying to do money. I was trying to do, hurry up and put the record out. That I, yeah, like that. The, the, is it even worth at this point for you, like trying to work with a label? Or are you working with a distributor or anything? I have DCGM Records, who I work with, and also Outro Records, who does the, all my vinyl and stuff. So basically, yeah, they get it distributed and stuff like that. That's all it is, you know. But in terms of like the great deal that record labels would offer of let's advance you money at a, at a crazy interest rate, like just pay for it yourself. Yeah, you make records, you know, because that's what I think you should do as an artist, not just tour. But I think you still should, you know, put some new stuff out every once in a while. And you make it and you sell them at your shows. That's basically what you're doing. You know, nobody plays the stuff on the radio, you know, maybe and you will. And, but, you know, I'm talking mainstream or when you're in your car and put on regular radio, you never get to hear the stuff. So basically you sell it at shows and you have product, but you also get to express yourself and that type of thing. So it's a challenge, I guess, too, writing and putting out a record. It's a big challenge and a big thing. But when you get at the end and you hear it, you go, oh, wow, that was good. That was good. Like Cry Little Sister. I worked that song for probably four months back and forth on different arrangements to make it my own, you know, no synthesizer, just guitar and the parts and putting all that together that, and to sing that song in that key, you know, that was a, a lot of work put into that couple song, you know, so and saying came out great, you know. So when you get to the end, you go, oh, my God, remember that month? I struggled with that. How am I going to do this? I promised the director of the movie I'd cover this. Oh, I hate it. I hate it. Tear up the paper, <laughs> throw it away, delete, throw it away over and over until something happens. So that's what I'm talking about writing. I wish I had more of the energy to go in there every day. I'd probably get a lot more done. Or I wish I had a partner who was in my head, like part of my brain, you know, maybe get some more things done. But um, I don't think about that or dwell on it. I, I get it done in the end and I'm, uh, you know. I want to be happy with it. This next album, you know, you always have that little stamp on your head of Ramones, which is always there. So you're constantly thinking you got to Ramonesify everything. This next record won't be as Ramonesified. It's going to be Richie Ramonesified. So I'm over that stigma of having to, you know, I think I've come with I fixed this and things like that. That doesn't sound like the Ramones, you know, that's all that kind of stuff is starting to sound like me now. 
Yeah, I mean, some of that is, I know, I think it was probably for prepping for when I was going to talk to you three years ago that I actually listened through all the Ramones albums that I had not done that. You know, I'd heard a lot of Ramones, but not in any kind of systematic way. And that even what counts as Ramones is a much wider genre than people think based on Beat on the Brat and Lobotomy, Teenage Lobotomy, you know, whatever the rock and roll high school, that particular narrow thing. It's just like anything that is hard rock kind of can fit. But with what you were saying about, you know, the specific drum feel and, you know, it's it's more like who the instrumentalists were that defined it rather than like, this is our specific sound that all the songs have to, you know, because it's like four or five over the years songwriters. It's a pretty diverse catalog, actually. So it can still, you can make something that, is no, this is very richified and it still sounds like it's within that kingdom because it's kind of, you know, for at least for fans, it's a pretty vast, you don't sing exactly like Joey. So it's not going to be, you're not trying to be actual, you know, a Ramones cover band. It's not, no, no, no. You know, what, what some of the tribute things that, that you guys do periodically are doing of, of like, let's try to recreate that world. But it is nice that you and CJ, that there are some people still alive that were associated with it so that you guys can pull out that it's not just like a cover band. It's, it's some piece of the original thing. And, you know, as part of the live set, the, the last member of Badfinger that's still alive. And like, is the guy that has to carry the torch. So you got somebody carrying the torch. I guess you got to then uh, train your kids or something to like be the official Ramones junior. I, I don't know. That's probably too late for that. Thanks for tolerating my uh, questioning style here. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun listening through your stuff, and I can't recommend the book more to folks. You're very deep. You try to like, I've had another interview like yours, you know, and it's like, you know, I'm just not that, I don't know, I'm just not that deep with anything like that, you know. I, 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 don't, I don't think about things that, that hard, you know. Like, I like the first time I heard Blitzkrieg Burp and heard Blitzkrieg Bop and heard Tommy Dunn and, 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 and that crash on that spot. I didn't go deep and go, oh, how did he ever think of that? Because it's probably the greatest crash symbol in any song ever in the spot because it so accents that song. You know, instead of crash, crash, he did, you know, it's on the thing. So that's as far as I did it. Like, wow, that's fantastic, you know. Whenever I hear cover bands doing that and they don't do it right, it always bothers me anyway. You might not articulate it and sort of try to, and of course when I'm creating, I don't like, this is all post hoc analysis. You know, it's just because it's kind of fun to dwell with the songs. That's the only reason I, I enjoy that kind of stuff. But clearly, you know, the amount that you're agonizing over this, like there's a lot of ideas going on and being put forward and rejected. And even if it like is mostly at an intuitive level and feeling things out, it's just, you know, it's hard to put feeling into words and maybe you don't want to. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, I probably don't want to bring those forward. That's more <laughs> demons I have to deal with, you know. I have enough right now. So I try to keep them back there. But there's always stuff going on, you know what I'm saying? And it's just a matter of time when that all... I kind of know, yeah, with music and song, you got to know what's good and you got to know what's bad. You have to start there. If you can't figure out just because your friend says, oh, that's, that's good, doesn't mean anything. You know what I'm saying? You got to know what's right, what's wrong, what's grabbing your attention. And that's why, you know, it's great playing these newer songs that they haven't heard yet. You come to a live show in this past tour we just did, you heard two or three songs you've never heard before. And people are very interested. I watch everybody in that audience, how they're reacting, you know, and where they're standing. And if they decide to go for a drink during that song or, you know, I take in all of this as I'm performing, not just, you know, 
they love that new material, so I can't wait to record it. So I get to experiment live before I'm recording it. Hey, Richie, what, what are you doing next? RichieMoan.com. That's my website, and people can find out all about the new movies. There's a lot of good stuff going on. Wait till you see this. I'm in Friday the 13th, the fan film coming out in September, you know, where I, I have physical fights with Jason Voorhees, you know, <laughs> and like, this is a real movie. They took two of my songs in that movie, Braggadocio and I Fixed This was another one they chose. The first two songs off that album. So I'm really excited about that movie. And then I have Protégé Moi, another one. Then I have Youthquake. So I think the end of this year is going to be pretty big for me. You know, I got a touring Mexico. I'm touring South America, Central America, Ireland, Scotland. There's a lot going on and finishing the record. All right. Well, here it is the last time for the last time. All right. Thanks, man.
Thanks so much to Richie. There was some rocky going there a bit about 15, 20 minutes in. But by the end, he was like, oh, we'll have to do another one of these so I can tell you more about the movie career. And so that was a very surprising thing for him to say after I thought he had been pretty hostile to my line of questioning. So I'm glad it all worked out eventually. Again, that's RichieRamone.com. Why don't you see if he has a gig near you? And for this podcast, go to NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. Make sure you're signed up directly to the Nakedly Examining Music feed and not hearing this just on a website or YouTube or on the Partially Examined Life podcast feed. Or better yet, to hear this with no ads, go to patreon.com slash Music or sign up for my paid feed through Apple Podcasts. My next interview is with veteran Nashville singer-songwriter Bill Lloyd, who, among other things, is a member of the extended Poco Universe, if you're a fan of that band, and rose to fame with the duo Foster and Lloyd. I've had Radney Foster on the show before. I most recently interviewed Susan Catanio, a wonderful country-flavored singer-songwriter from Boston who spent time in Nashville, but has now for 20 years been a songwriting teacher at the Berklee College of Music. So she is optimal for my format. I hope you're all doing well. The summer is treating you nicely. Whatever happens, keep on musicin'. Until next time, this is Mark Benton Meyer signing off. <laughs>